Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Okay, thank you. Very nice to be here. Um, I thought I'd start with a short quiz question. Um, anyone like to tell me roughly how many more people are we sharing our planet with now than we were when I left home at midday? Stephen knows the answer, so uh, he's the not lover. Um, anyone guess? About 45,000. Uh, round figures, 10,000 more people per hour, quarter of a million a day, one and a half million a week, 80 million a year. Just a bit of background. Um, as you know from that introduction, I'm a former diplomat, stormed out in a rage, actually, uh, which felt pretty good, and became an environmentalist. Um, I just want to tell you how the, the reasons why I talk about this so much. It's because on a whole mass of worthy Southwest regional committees, from the Assembly through to the Environment Agency, we were all trying to make the Southwest region sustainable. And we had lots of recommendations, and we wanted to spend lots of money. But I noticed that rather rapid population growth in the Southwest made all our problems harder to solve. We were always running up a down escalator, as it were. And so I started saying, so shouldn't we at least mention this factor, since it's a, you know, it does make things tricky. And the answer was always the same. There'd be a short, embarrassed silence. And everyone would stare at their papers, and the chairman would move on. And then over the coffee, a lot of people would come up to me and say, I'm so glad you raised that. And I would say, well, why didn't you support me? And they would change the subject, which made me realize this is, there's nothing special about this subject. You know, people are not rational about it, and um, it called for a bit of rationality. Now, my title sort of says it all. You know, no use reducing your footprint if you keep increasing the number of feet. Indeed, since I've said it all, I might as well go home now. Um, but we could, we could all cut it. That's the theme of the, of the, of the uh, talk, and I do very much want population growth recognized as one of the two great multipliers, along with consumption growth, of almost all our environmental and resource problems, and I would argue a lot of our economic and social problems too. Um, so all environmental problems, in my view, come down to that famous phrase, too many people consuming too much stuff. Um, it's a fairly familiar picture. The point being that it's finite. The flat earthers, the infinite flat earth, no longer credible. Indefinite growth on anything physical is quite clearly physically impossible on this planet. And in the abstract, I've set out three absolutely necessary consequences of that fact, which are factual. And they are that total impact on planetary environment equals, by definition, average impact per person times number of people. Total natural resources per person are, by definition, total natural resources, which are dwindling, of course, divided by number of people. And indefinite growth being physically impossible. I mean, frankly, I could spin you a dozen scenarios about how economic growth, growth in consumption, will end. And they're all equally improbable but at least have the merit of being possible. Unlike the prevailing view of the future, um, as assumed by the politicians and economists you hear on the Today program, uh, we will have ever more people consuming ever more stuff forever. That is clearly impossible, and that definitely, therefore, will not happen. The population can only stop growing in one of two ways, and one of two, these two ways will, in fact, happen. The nice way, sooner by fewer births, humane, rights-based contraception. Whenever I mention family planning or contraception, 
I mean rights-based, i.e. non-coercive, voluntary, fully respecting of civil rights. Or later, the Darwinian Malthusian way, which is nature's way, keeping numbers in balance with their habitat, that's famine and disease and predation, or in our case, war. But one way or the other, our population is definitely going to stop growing. And you can see that a finite pizza is in more ways than one, rather like a, a, a finite planet, rather like a finite pizza, in that the more we are, the less for each. President Kennedy's um, great environmental advisor, Kenneth Boulding, one of my heroes, in a speech 45 years ago, uh, made the memorable statement, anyone who believes in indefinite growth on a finite planet is either a madman or an economist. <laughs> and here's a history of the world in one neat picture. Um, I have copies of that graph, should you be interested, on, on paper here. But look at the age of it. I don't know, is there a different, no. Just look at the timelines. Um, Four and a half billion years, the Earth was building up natural capital in the minerals and the fossil fuels and the forests and the soils and the fresh water and the biodiversity and so on. Um, here's the dinosaurs, a very popular and very successful species of dinosaurs, lasted a long time. And that little black bar at the end is this timeline. Um, here's our last common ancestor with the chimpanzees about seven million years ago. And then our species, incredibly recent and even more recent, the last fraction of a second in planetary time, um, we invented agriculture, the first great revolution, the first form of artificial death control without artificial birth control, and the necessary condition for the start of everything we value, really, of civilization, in a word. But you'll see that that curve, the curve begins to rise. It turns sharply exponential with the Industrial Revolution. And as I see it, this was the time when we as a species became fast enough, uh, smart enough to learn to harness all that stowed, stored solar energy from the scores of millions of years of, of um, laying down the fossil fuels and set fire to it to get the energy to gobble our way through uh, the natural capital, the minerals and the biodiversity and the forests and the rest. But unfortunately, we remained stupid enough to think that this wasn't capital, it was income a critical category error that the economists still make. So um, I'd like to look at the range finally. See, the red line stops where we are now, just over 7 billion. But the range the UN project for 2050 in 37 years' time is a range from 8.1 to 10.6. That's a range of 2.5 billion people, more or fewer. And that was the entire population of the planet when I was nine. Um, it's tripled in my lifetime. And anyone who thinks that it actually will be just as easy to supply a whole planet's worth of two and a half billion people, more or fewer, with food and water and energy and so on, um, there's no real difference. It doesn't matter where we go on that. Um, it clearly has lost touch with reality. This is, this is not a sensible person. So uh, here's the UN's projection for uh, 2200. If they did constant fertility, it would go way off the chart, but they've assumed a drop in fertility on each of these scenarios, and you'll see a couple of hundred years, somewhere between 3 and 21 billion people, and no prizes for seeing which is more sustainable. Because it's a crowded old world, and not just in Bangladesh or Beijing. 
but very much here as well. Uh, the UK is highly overshot in terms recognized by the global, this is called the global footprint network. Um, that is to say, we are 300% overshot. We rely for three quarters of our renewable ecological services on other countries or on natural capital. And uh, the projections we get for the next um, 37 years, 2050, from the ONS post-census, where the, all the numbers went up rather strikingly, is that by 2050, uh, we'll be somewhere between 67 and 87 million people, which means at a minimum, eight more Manchesters, or 48 more Manchesters. Now, at the moment, we're growing at about one new Liverpool a year. A Manchester is, 500, is half a million, a Liverpool 450, and that's our current growth rate every year. So what that means, of course, is that we have to put in enough power capacity, and of course, preferably renewable power capacity, um, and enough schools and hospitals and houses and so on, all of which have embodied energy for an entire new Liverpool every year just to stand still in total standard, in average standard provision. So this is maintaining standards. It's not investing capital improvement. This is recurrent expenditure, even if it masquerades as capital expenditure. And 48 more Manchesters, well, our public opinion polls show that 80% of us already think that this country is overcrowded. We would like a smaller population, averaging around the high 40 million mark. So it's not going to be popular, this. And similarly, uh, England is now technically the most overcrowded country in Europe. It went past Holland four years ago, although it's distorted by lakes and so on. Even so, England's overcrowded. I mentioned that we're 300% overshot. And there's the international equity aspect of this, because every additional Brit has the carbon footprint of 22 more Malawians. So if we get 20 million more Brits, I mean, do the math. It's, it's an awful lot of more Malawians. Um, it's, not, it's not their fault. And indeed, that curve I showed you earlier is mirrored very widely. This is the Anthropocene, peak everything, the population, GDP, paper, motor cars, fertilizer, McDonald's, and so on. All the curves are going the same way. And the cities are getting quite numerous, aren't they? I mean, that's some striking figures about urbanization which have their own problems. So my basic point is pretty obvious. As long as our population keeps rising, and especially if it rises rapidly, as it is, then we're going to be like this chap. We're going to be running to stand still or only slip back slowly or occasionally gain a bit. But the point is, only when we've stabilized our populations can we get out of that blasted wheel and go somewhere better. I want to talk about food a bit. Food is obviously, with water, the, the basic human need. And here's a, quite a striking graph about poor countries. Um, there is a precise correlation. Isn't that a remarkable fit for the relationship between population growth and increasing hunger? And the tragic thing is that that shows that when we give food aid and other development aid to people like East Africa a year and a half ago, Somali famine and so on, we're not feeding hungry people more. We're just feeding more hungry people. Norman Borlaug, the father of the first Green Revolution, accepting his Nobel Prize 40 years ago, said, I've only bought you a breathing space, maybe 40 years, to stabilize your numbers. Otherwise, the power of reproduction will overwhelm any agricultural gains 
that my revolution has given you. And we didn't, of course, take him seriously, and we didn't, uh, we ignored him completely. But it is, it is, well, it does trouble me, that correlation, um, because I've spent time in countries like that, and I've seen hungry people. So here's the theory behind it. This is Paul Ehrlich, one of our patrons, along with David Attenborough and Jonathan Porritt and Chris Mitchell and Jim Lovelock, the Gaia man, and Jane Goodall. We're a respectable lot, actually. We're not a bunch of wild-eyed fascists. Um, but this theory here, the IPAT formula, uh, impact, environmental impact equals population multiplied by affluence or consumption and multiplied, or you could say divided by technology, obviously efficiency. It's a useful formula to have in mind, IPAT, and it's, it's pretty basic in all discussions of this topic. And here's the conclusion, in my view, an incontrovertible conclusion that must be drawn even from what I've said so far, um, let alone from, from common sense. Um, at that ghastly Rio conference in June last year, the Earth Summit, I came back deeply depressed, but um, little more so than by the infrequency with which anybody referred to that and the deliberate taboo around it, which is why I go around ranting about it. <coughs> um, and here's what it means for Africa in particular. Those, that's the median projection that the UN have for 2050. Now, Nigeria is a troubled country now. Unemployment's enormously high. My in-laws are Nigerian. And they have no jobs. They've all got degrees, but no jobs. The worst thing all is Niger. Little Niger here has the mournful distinction of being the fastest growing country in the world in population. Very nearly 4%. And the president of Niger was president at the worst and most hallucinatory of these ghastly meetings I went to in Rio. Run by, by the FAO called the Zero Hunger Challenge. How are we going to abolish hunger by 2050? And for an hour, Nick Clegg was there, the heads of all the agencies. They all debated earnestly how they were going to abolish hunger and how scandalous it was that he can't feed half his people now. 16 million people, he can feed eight of them. And nobody thought to mention the word population. 55 million in 37 years' time, median projection. There is this vast tragedy looming over the Sahel, which fills me with horror, having been to a conference in Ouagadougou a year ago and first encountered the Sahel. These poor women, I mean, they're tough, they're heroic, they deserve our respect, by God, they've a ghastly life. However, it is pretty obvious, isn't it, that their prospects of halfway decent life would not be helped by having the eight children each that the average mother in Mali, in Niger, currently has. And the Sahel itself is, of course, a big uncertain band. But in, 2050, in 1950, it had about 30 million people in it, stretching across the continent between the desert and the forest. Now it's got 100 million. The UN projects 340 million for 2050. And the notion that that can happen, it seems to me incredible. I believe there was a very high probability that scores of millions of people will die premature deaths in coming decades from the erosion of soil and water, loss of biodiversity and loss of vegetation. And no one's doing anything about it. No, they, they don't like to do much about it. I don't know why not. I think it's wicked. We all know the environmental consequences of generally speaking, of the environmental degradation our planet is suffering, and the consequences, therefore, of overconsumption times overpopulation. Here's a dried-up riverbed. Heaven knows where. 
But the point is that we know that the international tensions are rising rather rapidly in those disputed large catchment rivers, the Nile, the Euphrates, the Mekong, the Brahmaputra. Tensions are rising because ever more people need ever more water to irrigate ever more soil to, to uh, feed ever more people, and the water isn't there. So that's one unfortunate consequence, not to mention the tensions with the depletion of groundwater, the invisible depletion. The Ogallala Aquifer, which feeds half America, running up the Midwest from Texas, is running dry from the south-north. It's being depleted at twice the rate of replenishment. That's serious. And of course, there's competition between householders and so on. Finally, biodiversity. Um, you know, it's the poor relation of the sustainability debate, but wrongly, because biodiversity matters to us as well as to all those other creatures who spent far longer evolving than we did. There we are, 7050, this is a guesstimate. 7050, uh, we and our animals are 12%, now we're 98%. And where wildlife survives, like the wildebeest herds in the Serengeti and the Great Migration, it's for two reasons. One, people are kept out. And two, they're kept in balance with their habitat by their top predator, who has the great virtue of stopping eating wildebeest when he's had enough wildebeest. <laughs> Unlike the top global predator, a familiar figure. Unsustainable growth, indefinite growth, consumer capitalism does not know the meaning of the word enough. And that's a separate lecture, and I could give a, a separate lecture on, on mad economics, actually, if you like, but there isn't time for it now. And here's finally a familiar picture. This poor kid, prospects uncertain. Now, we've all seen on our television screens, haven't we, a lot of people with AK-47s. And we've also seen a lot of hungry people. But I, at least, have never seen someone with an AK looking hungry. Because this poor kid, at least he's got a meal ticket in that fantastically effective piece of machinery to the front of every food queue going. And food queues there will be. And uh, his chances are uncertain. So by and large, we're looking at a, crowd, at a planet already where it is almost, we are not quite at the stage where every additional one of us is immediately pushing somebody else off the plate. But effectively, with the, a massive maldistribution of incomes between the poor and the rich in the world, that is happening. We are pushing people off the plate. Like a bunch of Pac-Men, gobbling our way eagerly through anything that the, the planet offers us. And of course, if there were few enough of us Pac-Men, we could gobble away, and the planet wouldn't even notice. And if we all converted to being environmental saints tomorrow, but there were too many of us, the planet would collapse under us. Now let's talk about energy, finally. That's the big one. This is a very nice fit, isn't it? It's emissions and population. It conceals, I mean, it illustrates that correlation is not causation. It conceals the fact that um, emissions per capita in the rich countries have broadly stabilized over that period. Emissions per capita in the poorest countries have gone down because they're getting poorer, because their population growth is too high to catch up. They are running to catch up, but they're failing to catch up in Niger and elsewhere. And in the middle-income countries, the middle class is growing very fast. That's where the growth comes from. <coughs> the, sorry, I'm losing my place here. Not for the first time, and not for the last. Um, the, um, 
useful acronym. Do you use this, Stephen, in your own stuff? Eric Wayne? You, you do? I do, yeah. And, and everyone's familiar with the acronym already. Then I won't insult your intelligence by going on about it, but um, it, it is, sorry, it is quite helpful to know that, for instance, economists talk a different language. I mean, engineers talk uh, energy, economists talk money. And you see their projections for the future as being based on how much it's going to cost in dollars or pounds. Now, it's possible that I am perhaps the only person you've ever met who is so fabulously wealthy that I own $20 billion. Legal tender, legal tender, $20 billion note here, guaranteed by the Bank of Zimbabwe. <laughs> it just illustrates that money is odd. I mean, air energy is real. I tried once at an international economics conference to introduce the notion of devising an international currency to mirror the US dollar, but would be the erg, the unit of energy embodied in the different products and skills and so on traded. However, that uh, <laughs> didn't get anywhere either. Um, and don't look for, you know, the point about the Arrowway, sorry, is, is that, of course, when we started, we built our own infrastructure on an Arrowway of about um, 100 to 1. A stick a hole in the ground in California or, Pencil, or Pennsylvania, wasn't it? And whoosh, up comes a gusher, and you cap it off, and you set fire to it, and you, and you have a big party, and you build a skyscraper. Well, now the third world, the developing countries, are having to build their infrastructure on an airway which is declining somewhere between, best guess, obviously, between 18 and 12 to 1. And um, fracking, of course, is, in my view, hugely hyped, and in the view of the last chief scientist, but one, a friend of mine, David King, because the first, last figures I saw suggested that you get a 40% reduction in gas yield out of the average well drilled so far in America uh, in the first year, at the end of the first year, you're 40% down because of the low porosity of the rock, and therefore it doesn't migrate to the hole. So there's a lot of gas down there, but you've got to keep drilling uh, another whole year. And they all take energy. And so indeed, to the minerals, um, which we'll come on to. I mean, here's just about, about climate. Don't look to the UN talks to solve your climate problems. Bill Cartoon, the world's on fire, and the firemen are fighting each other. Here's a World Bank. Um, trend on, on uh, energy prices. You'll see this, the blip in 2009 didn't last long. And in my view, I could be wrong of course, a, a steep rising curve for total energy prices is going to be with you for your lifetimes. Dotting around a lot, but, but there we are. Um, because energy is difficult and we use too much of it, and there are ever more of us, um, all of them want more energy, too. And here's metals and minerals. That steeply rising line doesn't mean we're running out of the stuff. I mean, there's still plenty of lithium in Bolivia or copper in Afghanistan or, or whatever, rare earths in the Congo. But the, core, the, the ores are getting poorer. You've got to crush more rock per tonne of copper got out. They're in more inaccessible places. You have to invest more in infrastructure to get it out. In other words, the airway of each tonne of these minerals is going down. It takes more energy to get a ton. And energy is going to count more than, than money, although the market operates, of course, in money. This is the, the outgoing chief scientist, another friend, Sir John Bennington. He made a famous speech about two years ago. And I'll just give you his quote. It's the perfect storm comprises those three things, 
and leads to ever greater those three things. Well, um, when he says peak oil, by the way, I take that as being the shorthand version of declining airway. And here's the slide I got from David King, from John Pennington's predecessor, years ago now. Um, whatever your problem, this is a really important one, whatever your problem, whatever the figures turn out to be, whether it's energy or conflict and terrorism or food or biodiversity, whatever your problem, you're better off with a stable population and worse off with an ever-growing one. Whatever your problem, it is in your interests to stabilize the world's numbers, full respect for human rights, but at the lowest possible figure, so there's the greatest chance, the greater insurance policy, against the calamities that are increasingly trailed as a consequence of the tipping points that we may or may not already be in, in terms of methane emissions from the tundra, reduced albedo from the from the Arctic sea ice and so on. So here are a few people that agree with us. You know, we're not on our own preaching this stuff. And on our website, you could find an awful lot more of quotes like that. People who agree with us from, say, I mean, the Dalai Lama, John Maynard Keynes, um, and a lot of others. So I just offer you that, particularly the UNICEF comment, stated before the taboo came in force. Family planning can do more good for more people at less cost than any other technology. And here's our problem. Here's the weapon of mass destruction. Here's the testosterone molecule. Our species has, among other distinctions, the distinction of having more sex than any other mammalian species except bonobos, or bonobos, I never know. Um, and of course, the default position from very frequent sex is very frequent pregnancy. But aren't we lucky, as UNICEF said, that we are not other mammals. We have been smart enough, uniquely, to devise modern contraception. And if everybody had access to it and was empowered to use it and did use it, except when both parents actually wanted to conceive a child, our problems, half our problems, would disappear. And it doesn't even cost very much. Here's the, oh, that's a bad R there. There we are. However, here we are. I mean, that's the solution. It's damn simple. Contraception is a wonderful thing. And yet, it is underfunded. I could give, show you graphs. We're doing well. Um, for instance, showing that total EU aid for family planning was, is last year, it's correct, last year, it was about 0.4% of total EU aid. The total amount of money spent before the marvelous Melinda Gates, my favorite Catholic, with Andrew Mitchell, my favorite minister, flip gate thing. Uh, not favorite, but the two of them teamed up last summer and did this wonderful initiative, Family Planning 2012, and they got commitments for some seriously bigger sums of money. But until then, until then, it was amazing that the amount of money we spent on family planning in World Aid worldwide was about 10% of the Goldman Sachs bonus pot. It was as derisory as that. We didn't take it seriously. And I went to Stockholm to argue with the Swedish aid ministry once, and they were completely blanked out. You know, they just they weren't going to listen. We have done family planning. It is no longer an issue. And there's been a major miscategory error in how we see it, too, because the, some of the people who have been active in the recent decades have actually defined population problems as though they were synonymous with sexual and reproductive health and women's rights. Now, it's sexual and reproductive health, family planning, is the solution 
to the vast global problem affecting vastly more than the health ministry of population growth, obviously, as I've been showing. But because it's been marginalized as an issue of health, the heads of government don't even think about it. It's for the health minister. He can divide his budget up. It's a subset of a subset of a subset of aid. It's sexually reproductive health. And this has been a serious mistake our allies have made. And why hasn't the world actually wised up to this? Why are these resources so derisory? Well, I don't know, actually. I'm still puzzled. But hysteria is a substantial part of it. This good lady does not like people like me. Um, she is representative of a very strong fundamentalist uh, religious group and also extreme feminists. Some people say that extreme feminism, when men say there are too many people, they say you are talking coercion, you are talking coercive contraception, and that's the worst human rights crime you can possibly commit, and we hate you. Strange thing. This bizarre coalition emerged in the 19... Late 80s, early 90s, led for obvious reasons by the religious right, primarily the Pope, because of that unforgivable and monstrous doctrine that they have on contraception, but followed by um, the, the, uh, a group of feminists who quite rightly felt at the time of the 94 Cairo conference on population that they objected as women to having their bodies instrumentalized by men for public purposes. Absolutely right. The women's rights argument added to the population argument would have made a much more powerful combination. But bizarrely, they said, you mustn't talk population, you must only talk about women's rights, which again marginalized it. And lastly, here's quite a serious cartoon here, because you know, this is about people like us, people like the editor of The Guardian. We all know people like that. Some of you may be people like that. Um, I've stopped being someone like that, but there we are. It's a taboo. It's not examined, it's not rational, it's not helpful, it's in fact vastly damaging to the prospect for our kids to have a decent life. But there it is, and it affects the environmental NGOs almost entirely. Um, it affects the development NGOs, Oxfam, wonderful outfit. But I was opening Oxford Think Week a month ago in Oxford and reminded the good people in the town hall there that when Oxfam was founded in 1947, the number of people in the world was the range projected for 2050, about two and a half billion, less than two and a half billion, and about the same as the number of hungry people in the world today. Uh, Oxfam was set up to abolish hunger, and there's an entire planet full of hungry people now compared with when they were set up. And what they do, these people, it's, just the, it's not just the NGOs, of course, it's the governments. Our government will say privately, of course they agree, but they won't say it publicly. The UN system, dreadful. In the climate talks, we constantly try to get governments to bring it up. Nobody does. In Rio, this ghastly... <sighs> Apology for us. Never mind. Um, these people all are telling a silent lie. And the lie consists of implying uh, that they can make the world all lovely and sustainable and prosperous, regardless of how many people there are in it, when they all know it's not true, because more people makes for less sustainability and less prosperity. And it's quite a serious thing. So last year, personal note, here's why I do all this stuff. Why don't I enjoy my retirement? My favorite person in the world, my granddaughter. I am frightened for the future this child faces. And I want to give her a chance of a decent life. And I know that she'll have a better chance of a decent life, 
in a planet with 8.1 and 10.6 billion people, or a country like the UK with, with um, 60 rather than 90 million people in it. So what I want, what should you do about it? What I want you to do is, first of all, break the taboo, wherever and whenever it comes up. Just break it. Bring in population. I'd like you to spend five minutes in the next week on that website. No more. Doodle around, see if it gives you any ideas, perhaps pass it on to somebody. I want you to think big. I want you to start environmental discussions with a perspective of the biophysics of a finite planet. Because I, since I started doing that some years ago, I found all sorts of horror stories in the newspaper unrelated, economic and social as well as environmental and resource scarcity and so on, um, all start to make more sense. I, I feel I understand what's happening globally now and an awful lot of people um, are, are behind me. Next time you give a paper, give a lecture, write a paper, um, include the population factor and include it always as a variable, not a given. Far too many people think these figures are given, they're variables. If you remember an NGO, end the silent lie. Tell them, if you support Oxfam, tell it, you know, they're doomed. They'll be running up a down escalator forever. And any development good they do will be overwhelmed if they don't stabilize numbers as well. Family planning, a good reproductive health program should be part of, an important part of, any development program where populations are rising. And indeed, we in this country are so overshot that of course we want to not just stabilize our numbers, but then reduce them by voluntary means to a sustainable level, and that's, that's much more difficult, along with reducing consumption. Reject the either-or argument. If you, any, anybody ever says to you, the problem is not population, it's consumption, our overconsumption. It's obviously both, regardless of the disparities between the shapes of the rectangles, as it were. Uh, area of rectangle equals height times width, the length times width, and um, you know, they vary. But it's always both, as the Royal Society said in their great paper last year, report um, People on the Planet. Uh, you can't, it doesn't make sense all about population in isolation from consumption or vice versa. The two go uh, indissolubly linked. We want to get population, if you have any contacts with DEC, Department of the Energy, or let alone the Climate Talks, the UN, try and ask them to include these figures that I gave for the number of power stations, enough power stations for 48 more Manchester's rather than eight. They don't take account of it. They take the median projection as being a given regardless. And it's not, it's a variable. Among your friends, promote two or fewer um, in terms of children. Um, if people have a third and fourth child, don't just gush. I mean, obviously do gush if they're a friend. But at the same time, ask a question or two. You know, have you thought about the implications for your own kids? More crowded world that they'll be moving into. And lastly, tell your MPs that it's in the national interest to stabilize the UK population, because that was the recommendation, one of the two recommendations of the last um, big sensible uh, studies of the UK population was in 1972. Ha! Ted population panel unanimously re recommended to Parliament, one, we would be better off with a stable than a growing population, two, the government should set up, uh, should, should do something about it, starting with of adding population to the job description of a senior interdepartmental minister with a small staff to start pulling together the implications because at the moment it's a problem affecting everybody but it's nobody's business and I get stuff back from, from Lord um, the 
Chris Smith at the Environment Agency and other ministers saying, of course we agree with you, uh, but it's not our business. It's nobody's business. And we're blundering into this ever more unsustainable future. Now, the last thing you can do, of course, is join, join Population Matters, and I uh, have a number of things here, should you be interested. Also, if you are interested, I've got that graph I showed at the beginning, a picture of the world, with our basic manifesto, the short summary statement on the back, a set of factual statements. And I have policies we could go on to. I mean, you know, the policies we recommend to government are this lot here, of which the difficult ones are migration and uh, taxation, where are we, child benefit. These are the hard ones people don't like. We don't like them, but they're necessary consequences of the desire to, you know, we, we couldn't be a, have a credible policy if we didn't have those in. Um, but I don't want to get hung up on that lot, so I'll go back to that for the time being, and we can come back to those if you like. And have I overshot? Not yet. Is it okay? So I'll shut up. Okay, thank you. <laughs>